So since we were together last week, one question has been revolving around water coolers. It's been going through our social media platforms. It's been uh, plaguing minds that are curious. Is Tom Brady the greatest quarterback of all times, right? I mean, that's a question everybody wants to answer, right? And regardless of your opinion on the matter, it's really not the first athlete that we've ever had this kind of conversation about, like, who the greatest is, right? I mean, there was a day when we wondered, would Babe Ruth's record for hitting home runs ever be surpassed? In the area of basketball, we've seen people like Wilt Chamberlain or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar kind of set the bar really high. And yet then people come along like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or now LeBron James, all like determining like who is the greatest of all time. Even boxer Muhammad Ali, he claimed to be the greatest. He wasn't necessarily known for his humility, and he's quoted as saying some of these things. I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast, I can't possibly be beat, Ali said. He says, it's not bragging if you can back it up. I like that phrase. He says, I'm the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. He also said this, I'm the most recognized and loved man that ever lived because there were no satellites when Jesus and Moses were around, so people far away in villages didn't know about it. He said, it's hard to be humble when you are as great as I am. The story is told about Muhammad Ali boarding an airplane and the flight attendant asked him to put a seatbelt on and he refused time and time again. And finally, he said, you know, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant back said, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. Who is the greatest? That's a question that has looked at all different kinds of contexts. Athletics is not the only context where people can tend to be the greatest or pretend that they are superior to others. It happens in all kinds of contexts. It happens in our workplaces. It happens in politics. It happens in philanthropy. It can happen in our family. It can even happen in the church. And, and there's a healthy side of competition. Competition helps us work and strive to be good at what we're doing, to work hard, to, to strive hard. But there's also an unhealthy side of competition where we do anything at all costs just to win or just to uh, look down on someone to outlast or to outshine someone to be the greatest. Today, we want to settle the debate of who deserves first place in our lives. Our first attention, our first affection, whose approval we're actually striving to gain and why that really matters. It's the next question we have to ask in this journey of, in this quest to understand the kingdom of God. Last week, we began this journey by answering the question, what is the kingdom of God? What's it all about and why should we care? We began a working definition we're using throughout this entire series called The Kingdom that defines the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. It's God's story beginning in the creation and how it's continually at work in and through his creation. And it's a story that continues to this day and will continue on throughout eternity. It's God's rule and his reign. That's actually what makes it a kingdom, a king. Who is the king? It's the question we need to answer if we're truly going to understand the kingdom of God. Now, in our Western mindset, we're not real familiar with kingship or even kingdom language. We might be most familiar with the royalty and reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who's been leading the United Kingdom since 1952. 
Most of the information we know about her is informed by TV shows like Downton Abbey or The Crown, more than history class growing up, right? And there's this weird dynamic with the Queen Elizabeth II. She is head of the state, but she's not entirely in charge of the entire government. And that's a little confusing. She doesn't have ultimate authority that's mostly associated with kings and queens. And of course, our own country's history and relationship with kingship's a little jaded because the major motivation for beginning this country was rebellion against the king, right? I think it's amazing how much this mindset has affected our understanding of the kingdom of God, either out of ignorance or out of the desire to have nothing to do with it. You see, in our culture today, authority kind of has a bad rap. Most people think of authority and view it negatively, like it's ultimately bad. But authority and power are not ultimately bad. It's it's due to the corruption and to the misuse that we see of power and authority in our day. So we want to understand the kingdom of God, and we have to begin first by recognizing the sovereignty of God. God created the world and all that there is, and he's in charge. He's the supreme ruler of all creation. David exclaimed in Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. God has ultimate authority. That's why it's called the kingdom of God. It's not up for debate. It's not up for vote. God is reigning over all. Everyone, everything, every event, every item, every matter, every thought has its final and subject to that sovereignty. God's reign is universal. D.A. Carson says this, the kingdom of God in the sovereignty sense doesn't come, it's here. It's unavoidable. It's primordial. It's come from forever and it will go on to forever. You can't escape it. You are never outside of it. God's sovereignty is uncontested in heaven. But on earth, The devil and sin causes enmity between God and his creation through free will. Because God gave us free will, we must determine who or what will rule and reign our lives. This is not a challenge to his sovereignty. It's just the freedom we have to surrender to it. From creation on, humankind has had the privilege and the responsibility of obeying or the choice to disobey God. There's been this this rebellion that we've seen from the very beginning, even before Adam and Eve were created. Satan chose to rebel against God. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. You and I choose to rebel against God. When we let anyone or anything have complete control of our life other than God. We see this struggle playing out in the Garden of Eden and forward all throughout history. Now, upon Jesus' arrival, we see a a fuller picture of the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus. Jesus came to reveal God's character and purposes to the world and also to make it possible for all people to become part of the kingdom of God, to be reconciled to God, to restore God's creation the way that God intended it to be, the people in all of creation flourishing under his rule and under his reign, to usher in the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus this way when he writes in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As fully God and fully man, Jesus comes to earth as king. The Old Testament prophecies about Jesus point to his kingly role in the kingdom of God. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he, of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus was fully God. He was embodying God's rule and reign and ushering in the kingdom of God. Throughout Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, we see all the proofs of the kingdom of God in him. We pointed out several of those in our year-long study through the Gospel of John last year. But I think one of the most prominent moments displaying the kingship of Jesus is when he entered Jerusalem on the week before his crucifixion. It's recorded in most detail by Matthew in Matthew 21. We're not going to read through the entire passage, but let me just point out some of the things that point to Jesus as king. First, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. This was a prophecy from Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, see, your king comes, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was saying, I'm king, and I'm here. The second thing, Jesus cleanses the temple. He runs out the money changers. He says to them, you're making my house a house of prayer into a house, a den of robbers. John, when he records Jesus cleansing the temple, he quotes Psalm 69.9 that says, zeal for your house consumes me. That was an indicator that Jesus just wasn't a good prophet. He was the Messiah. He was the king. The next thing Jesus does is he heals the blind and the lame. This is always associated with the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 35 when he said, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he'll come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's all flourishing language about what will happen when the king arrives. And Jesus says, I'm here. And then Jesus is also acknowledged and worshipped by children. This was prophesied and was an indicator that Jesus is king. In this moment, we see people spreading their coats on the ground as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. That was always associated with the inauguration of a king in the Old Testament. You probably remember they were waving palm branches. They were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is him who comes in the name of the Lord. They said, Hosanna to the son of David indicating that Jesus was part of this Davidic dynasty with an eternal reign, bringing the kingdom of God. And the little kid said, the king is here. They associated Jesus with God and worshiped him as king. 
This and so many more of Jesus' words and actions declare that Jesus is king. That's actually what it means when we hear the name Jesus Christ. Actually, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title indicating that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is king. Have you ever got a new boss at work? That can be a fun ride sometimes, but the, the uh, anticipation of that can be a little uh, anxious, anxiety-driven. I mean, you don't know this person. And whether they're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. You want to know if they're respectable or if they're respectful. You want to know if they're trustworthy. You want to know if they're trusting. And all the way that that new boss carries himself or herself actually changes the culture, the environment, even maybe the productivity of the workplace. Well, this morning, I want us to identify what kind of king is Jesus? There are many erroneous views of who Jesus is. People have made Jesus into their own image. And Jeremy Treat, in his book, Seek First, that we're encouraging you to read, in chapter three, he does a a great job kind of pointing out some of these fictitious views of Jesus. In fact, this week, I'd encourage you to read chapter three from Seek First. It'll help kind of unpack the things that we're even talking about this morning. For our time today, I want to focus not on who Jesus was, but actually who he was. What kind of king Jesus really is. And the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the active king. Jesus came into our world proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. And this is good news, he said. He came on a mission. Jesus is not some type of figurehead. He's actually a hands-on leader. Jeremy Treat says this. Whatever image comes to your mind when you hear the word kingdom, replace it with a mental picture of a person, Jesus. Imagine Jesus healing a body deteriorated by disease. Think of Jesus removing the burden of guilt and shame. Picture Jesus setting free the oppressed. When you hear the kingdom, don't imagine a palace in the sky. Think of a person on the ground bringing restoration to a world marred by sin. The kingdom of God is not about what we do. It's actually about what Jesus has done. He came to our world to restore all creation and to reconcile our relationship with God. That's actually what the gospel is all about. Treat says, connecting the kingdom of God to Christ's person and work is important because many people think of Christianity merely as a set of timeless principles. Like a stick of dynamite dropped into the ground, the gospel explodes any understanding built on our morality or works. Christianity is not ultimately about a system of beliefs or principles of morality, but about a person, Jesus, and how he accomplished something in history that will shape all of eternity. Jesus doesn't give us instructions to build a kingdom. He announces that he's the king. And then in knowing and belonging to him, God's reign comes through God's people over God's creation. God, I want you to understand that Jesus is still active today. He continues to be an example of how we're to live and how we're to love. He intercedes for us when we pray. He gives us the power to proclaim the kingdom of God and to participate in the kingdom of God here on earth. He didn't just die on the cross, go back to heaven and kind of chill. He's actually still active and working today. Jesus is the servant king. We can learn a lot about the kingdom of God just by watching how Jesus lives and loves. He left his throne in heaven, but he was still king when he entered the world. Treat says this, Jesus reigns by serving rather than demanding to be served. He is powerful, but his power is guided by love. 
He is just, but his justice is coupled with mercy. He is wise, but his ways are so counterintuitive to our selfish hearts that our world perceives his wisdom as folly. In his teachings, his miracles, his interactions, his way of life, the kingdom of God was displayed. Jesus was righteous. He was holy. He lived a perfect life. He actually fulfilled the covenant that God established with Abraham and the people of Israel. That means he he never sinned. His ever thought, his ever attitude, his actions showed the character of God. He's a great example to follow. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus is the servant king, which does not mean that he's less authoritative. It means that he rules in such a way as to seek the good of those over whom he reigns. He's adamantly committed to seeking the good of those over whom he reigns. It's not to gain power. It's not to become highly respected or wonderfully known or the like. Rather, it's to seek the good of others. Jesus was always present when he interacted with others. He was in the moment. He offered dignity and value to whomever he encountered. He met tangible needs. He ultimately sacrificed his life for the needs of others. When Jesus is king, he works through his people. And the work that he does through his people is characterized by his character, the way that he lived and the way that he loved. And we see Jesus as a sacrificial servant king. People were drawn to him for his compassion, his power to heal. They could see how the kingdom that they thought was coming was now on earth, but his kingdom looked much different. Jesus said to his followers in Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the active king, he's the servant king, he's also the crucified king. Just when people thought, ha, look, here he is, the person who's going to overthrow Rome. Rome, watch out, you're going to get it now. Well, Jesus began speaking of his death, his upcoming death, and then it happened. Jesus' crucifixion at the hands of Rome seemed like the end of the story. Ironically, they put a sign over the head of Jesus on the cross, King of the Jews, but it was a mockery of all that he stood for, what he represented to them. Treat says this, The cross did not derail Jesus and his kingdom work. Jesus is king on the cross. He's forgiving sin, defeating evil, and establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The cross is the greatest display of Christ's reign as power controlled by love. The cross is the climax of a story that begins in the garden and culminates in the kingdom. Jesus' death on the cross, we we see how God was reconciling all of creation back to himself. Jesus came to restore this relationship between God and humankind by providing himself as a sacrifice for sin. My family and I are reading through the Bible together this year, and right now we just finished the book of Leviticus. Many read through the Bible plans in a year, stop at the book of Leviticus, because it just gets a little crazy. You you start seeing the amount of blood and animals being sacrificed, and you're like, wow, this is like gory, and people can just get a little disenfranchised in that moment. But as I've been reading through it, and we've had some conversation with our daughters, we've understood that sin is costly, that 
The animals had to die because of the sin that was in the people's life. And, and it just brings to life, wow, that's what Jesus did for us. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7 speak of this. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here am I. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice and body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus is the crucified king. Treat says, Jesus' death reveals that grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. This is not sentimental love, it's sacrificial love. Men, if you're not aware, today is February 14th. It's Valentine's Day. And how your wife wants to be loved is not just by some cheap gimmick that you'll provide for her, but to show her you love her just by sacrifices made. And women, that's the way your wife wants to be, or your husband wants to be loved, just by sacrificial expressions of that love. It's, it's modeled after the person we claim as king, Jesus who was the crucified king. One of the things I love about our campus here in Newburgh are the two prominent crosses, one right behind this wall facing Interstate 69 and the other one directly on the other end of the building facing Epworth Road. If you've ever noticed the crosses that are on both ends of our building, there's something unique about the horizontal beam that goes uh, from left to right. It's actually curved. And there's a reason for that. It was designed specifically to remind people in this church and also in this community that God's love encompasses them, that God's love is extending to them, that God's love is wrapped around this congregation and also this community. What a powerful thing that we demonstrate in art that Jesus demonstrated in his life. Because Jesus is this kind of king, a crucified king, we can experience unconditional love that reconciles us to God even though we're sinful. We can experience grace and mercy because Jesus came and died in our place. He took our punishment for sin on the cross. We can be forgiven, we can be reconciled, and we can have our guilty conscience cleaned. Jesus is an active king, he is the servant king, he's the crucified king, but Jesus is also the resurrected king. You know, we might find other leaders who are active, or who are sacrificial, who are servant-hearted. But what sets Jesus apart from all others, what makes him an unmatchable king is this. He came back to life. You'll find many religious religions that have a martyr as a leader, but Christianity rises and falls whether or not Jesus still has a heartbeat. Jesus died a physical, literal death on the cross. He was buried in a tomb, and that opening was shut with a big old huge rock. It was sealed. But three days later, he made a full bodily resurrection, coming back to life. He appeared to hundreds of people who could validate that he actually came back to life before ascending to heaven. This is all fact. Both Jesus' death and his resurrection have been historically documented. Jesus' death on the cross, though, was not the end of the story. And it wasn't the end of his reign as king. Treat says this, the cross is not a defeat that's made right by the resurrection, but a victory that is revealed in the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the vindication of his mission. He was declared the son of God, vindicated as savior and king. Because Jesus is the resurrected king, we can have hope beyond this life. 
Our hope is not in the things of this world because the things of this world are fleeting. Life is short. And it's not the end of the story when we die. We can have hope and peace and confidence because Jesus came back to life. We too will come back to life. That gives us comfort when we face death. It gives us comfort when one of our loved ones die. That death's not the end of the story. It's a powerful declaration that Jesus is king. Finally, Jesus is the reigning king. Jesus came, he saw, and he conquered. He defeated sin on the cross and death through his resurrection. He ascended into heaven and he now reigns as the eternal king. There's many descriptions of Jesus as reigning king throughout scripture. One of my favorites is in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Listen how it describes Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in white linen, clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus, Trent says, Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because he had accomplished what he came to do. But he didn't sit in a lazy boy, Treat says. He sat on a throne. Jesus is king. He's the all-time undisputed champion. We have a king in Jesus who's active, who's servant-hearted, who died for us, who resurrected, and now who reigns. And because Jesus is the reigning king, we can have confidence that he's in control, no matter what's happening in our life or the world around us. Jesus is reigning, and we can find peace in, in the midst of chaos around us because Jesus is king. One of the most powerful, I think, proclamations of, of Jesus being all these things as king are some words that were actually an ancient hymn that were recorded by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. This is what Paul sings in declaration of Jesus' kingship. He says, Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a picture of King Jesus. Equal with God, yet willing to set that aside, leaving heaven to come to earth, becoming a human, not any less God, but also not some superhuman. He became a servant, obedient to the point of death and past subject to the cruelest form of execution the world has ever known, just for you and for me. And then God exalted him to the highest place of honor and power. He gave him a name above every name, that at his name every person will bow, because he is Lord. Jesus is king. 
The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Amen. Amen. That is who Jesus is. And if he is that kind of king, then how do we respond? I think the only appropriate response is first just to worship him for who he is. To worship him for the type of king that he is. And when I mean worship, I mean give him glory, adore him, focus on his character, 
share about who he is by telling him to others. When I mean worship, I mean admire him, praise him for who he is. We can do that in our words. We can do that in song. We can do that by giving gifts. We can do that in by telling others to worship him. And I think the only other response that's appropriate is to surrender to him as king. He's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our trust because of the type of king he is. He came the first time as king and he offered an invitation to all of us to be part of the kingdom of God by placing our faith and trust in him as savior and choosing to make him Lord, king. Until he comes again, there's this period of forgiveness and patience that the opportunity to claim him as king is available to all. We can all bow our knee in worship. We can all confess his name in surrender. But I want you to also know that Jesus is coming back as king. And this time he will come back to judge the earth. He will come back to save those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus and honor him as king. He also will come back to punish those who have not. The Bible says that he will separate those two groups like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's a harsh reality, but it is no less fact. Every knee will bow in that moment to Jesus who is king. But please don't wait until that moment to acknowledge Jesus as king because at that point, it'll be too late. Choose Jesus now and make him king now. And the way to do that, the way to make Jesus king is to follow him. After Peter made that great confession, you are the Christ, meaning you are the king, Jesus said to his followers these words translated by the message. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself your true self. What good would it do to get everything you wanted and lose you, the real you. If any of you is embarrassed with me and the way I'm leading you, know that the Son of Man will be far more embarrassed with you when he arrives in all his splendor, in company with the Father and the holy angels. This isn't, you realize, pie in the sky by and by. Some who have taken their stand here are going to see it happen. See with their own eyes the kingdom of God. That's a picture of the kingdom what it looks like when you make Jesus your king. So the question is, is he your king? When Jesus is your king, it changes everything. His activity gives us purpose and direction. Because he serves and loves, we serve and love others. Because his death brings us forgiveness, we find mercy in him. And his resurrection gives us hope. And the fact that he reigns brings us peace. We're going to respond to who Jesus is and, and what he's done in a time of communion with him right now. This is a time we set aside every week to worship Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. We reflect on him as the type of king he is, a type of king that would step off his throne in heaven and onto a cross so that you and I could be part of his kingdom. He paid the penalty for our sins so our relationship could be restored with God. So we worship him because of who he is. And we surrender to him because of what he has done. I pray that you'll take these quiet moments to just reflect on who Jesus is, the kind of king he is, and that you would find yourself worshiping him more. And I also find, hope that you'll find yourself 
surrendering to him more as well as you make him king. And then we encourage you to join us in a time of worship. Let's pray together. God, thank you for sending Jesus a reflection, an embodiment of who you are and also what the kingdom of God's all about. Because he is active and sacrificial and crucified and resurrected and reigning, all those characteristics describe him as our king. And we worship him for that. And because of who he is, we find ourselves being drawn to him, not just in worship only, but in surrender as well. We want our lives, the way that we love, to not just be influenced, but to be directed and controlled by his rule and reign in our life. So God, would you continue to reveal to us what it looks like to make Jesus king, to be part of the kingdom of God, and to see heaven come to earth. We pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.